As you know, we are doing the series God of Miracles, and so over the next seven Sundays, we're going to be looking at um, the different miracles that are recorded in the Gospel of John, and there are seven of those, and this is our Lenten series, and you might think it's interesting to be focusing on God's miracles during a Lenten season, which typically is more of a solemn um, time in the Christian calendar, typically more of a self-reflection time, but I think um, it's going to be pleasantly surprising how God uses this sermon series and this topic um, in our lives during this season. So just a disclaimer before we jump in to the wedding feast at Cana. As I was kind of reading and doing studying for this message this morning, there is so much commentary on the issue of alcoholism and intoxication based on the wedding feast of Cana. Because if you're familiar with that story, it's the turning of the water into wine. And I got to be completely honest, I just wanted to throw most of those commentaries out. And th- these are good commentaries. They're not like, you know, random things. But I wanted to throw most of them out because I was like, we're missing the point if we approach this sermon series, uh, approach this miracle of Jesus from a place of having it determine and say something about alcohol. Um, Yes, Jesus does turn water into wine. And that is a statement in and of itself. But alcoholism and intoxication and drunkenness isn't mentioned at all in the narrative of the miracle and the wedding feast at Cana. So what I ask of all of us, myself included, is that we kind of step back from our Christian moralism this morning, and we say we're not going to read into this morning's passage with this mindset that Christians are against alcohol. Um, because that, I think, is going to miss some of what this narrative has for us this morning. And it's not because um, I'm also trying to make a a positive, a pro statement or um, towards the drinking of alcohol, but when we get to actually what the wine is symbolizing, if we attribute wine and interpret it through our understanding and our cultural, our current cultural definition of alcohol, then we're actually making a statement about Jesus. Because the wine in this passage we'll see is symbolic of who Jesus is and what he comes to bring to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and us. And so if we have this kind of bias towards alcohol, if we have this our current American cultural view of alcohol informing how we see wine represented in this passage, then we're going to miss what this passage is actually talking about and what it's actually referencing and who Jesus Christ is, not only in our lives, but who he seeks to be in our church and in our culture, in our region. And so just want to give that disclaimer so that you don't hear anything um, from me on that issue, and that um, you can also be open and receive from this passage um, what the Lord has for us this morning. 
So if you would, I invite you to stand. We're going to read uh, John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Father God, as we just come um, this morning to look at your word, as we come to understand this uh, first act of manifesting your glory, um, God, that your spirit would just guide us, your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to receive from you this morning according to your word. Amen. You may be seated. So John's gospel is known for communicating primarily to two audiences. He actually tries to balance a little bit of both reaching the Jew and reaching the Gentile. And so throughout all of John's gospel, we see that what he's really trying to do is he's trying to validate the divinity of Jesus. He's trying to help the Jews see that Jesus truly is the Messiah. He truly is the one we've been waiting for. And to the Gentiles, he tries to show them that, yes, sure, you have all these other gods that you think do great things, but let me tell you about a God who actually does great things. And so John kind of goes back and forth to grab both groups of people both the Jews and the Gentiles, to see, help them see the validity of Jesus, the Messiah. And so that's just a little bit of background as we're going into this and understanding that the wedding at Cana grabs both Jew and Gentiles' attention. And there's a lot of symbolism all throughout um, the, the wedding feast at Cana. I think most of um, our understanding of this miracle that Jesus performs, we have to actually step back again, even further than what I was mentioning at the very beginning, and suspend all of our understanding of weddings, suspend all of our cultural values that we have around um, receptions and weddings, because this this specifically takes place within a Jewish wedding. And so, The culture, the Jewish culture just permeates 
through this whole narrative. And what we know is that in Jewish culture, the marriage, the wedding feast was a big deal, sometimes going for one to two weeks long. And they would actually have a party previous to the actual ceremony. And so they would, they, what they call was they keep open house. And basically for like a week or two, the whole village would just come and go and eat and drink. And it was just like this constant party. I'm like, I could go, I'd be all right with that, you know, <laughs> take off work for a week or two and just, you know, show up at people's houses, eat, that'd be fun. Um, and, but it was a real community experience. It was a real celebration that was such a big deal that they would actually like put on hold, you know, all the extras of life and just celebrate. They would have um, the bride and groom as a part of the ceremony would actually march through the village so that everybody had the opportunity to give their blessing to the new couple. And so this is, this is a big deal. This is a big moment. And there is a lot of um, also like Jewish faith, Jewish ritual, Jewish expectation as a part of this ceremony. And so there's probably a lot of preparations, a lot of planning that go into it. And so this morning, as we're talking about um, this miracle that Jesus performs at this wedding, I just invite you to not necessarily hear with that ear that's looking for the, um, the breakdown or the three-point sermon kind of mentality that we can have, but actually engage your imagination. Let your imagination play out this scene. And this scene isn't that of, you know, like a, a party that's out of control. But this scene is actually of a party that, like, everybody's coming together. They're excited. They're filled with joy. They know these people. They've been interacting with them in daily life for years. And they, they kind of feel a part of the family of this bride and this groom. And they get to actually rejoice and celebrate. They're excited. And they come and they eat good food and they drink good drink. And they just get to share in the fellowship and the excitement of the moment. So let your imagination just play with that. Let your imagination kind of go with that as you hear about this narrative this morning. So the first thing, there's a couple points that I want to highlight. And um, I'm going to ask uh, put that slide up. And the first one is that in verse 2, verse 3, when the wine ran out, that quite possibly is the worst thing that you could have happen at a wedding. So you can see no more wine. This is disgraceful to the bridegroom. This is embarrassing. It's a violation of hospitality in the Jewish culture. Wine was the predominant drink at the time. It was what you would have in abundance. Uh, If you see there, it says under wine, it says rabbis would say, without wine, there is no joy. And so this wine represented like the joyous occasion. The wine represents like the celebration of the moment. And it's not joy in the sense of like the drunkenness that 
we could kind of think, oh, sure, they were happy, right? Because they were drunk. No, it wasn't about that. It was about like something special, like the wine represents the significance of the special, unique moment that we're celebrating. And so you have this idea of no more wine. I mean, it would have been completely embarrassing. The whole village would never have forgotten that this was the wedding ceremony that ran out of wine. And it, it would have been a sign of, of irresponsibility that they weren't prepared And so the assumption is that Mary had some sort of role with this wedding feast. And so she comes and she says to Jesus, they have no wine. You may have heard then Jesus' reply to be a reply of of somewhat of a rebuke. And, And most of the commentaries do highlight that. But I would actually like to challenge that thought because Jesus replies He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? The reason I want to challenge that, because the word woman here is the same word that Jesus uses when he's hanging on the cross. And he looks down at Mary and John and he says to the woman, he says, woman, this is your son. Son, this is your mother. Go and take her. That moment is the most endearing moment on the cross. And it's the same word that Jesus uses here. And so I don't think this woman, when he says woman, I don't think that's an actual disrespect or a rebuke. That's that's an, an endearing term. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And if you understand the Jewish culture and if you understand the Jewish language, our English would have read that, interpret that, what does this have to do with me as a like a kind of a, like, shooing that off, like, come on, like, what do I have to do with this? But it's actually a very common phrase that when they would say it in, in the Hebrew, it would actually be like, it's okay, I got it. And so he's saying, woman, no worries, I got it, you know? And he, and he says, yep, my hour has not come, Right? So he is highlighting that this is not for what I've come for. I haven't come just to solve problems, to do miracles, to keep people out of trouble. To That's not my intention. That's not my purpose. So my hour has not yet come. And whenever in the New Testament we see that my hour has not come, it's always in reference to his death and resurrection on the cross. So he's still pointing to say, like, there's more than just this for my purpose. But I got this. I can take care of this. And so he looks at what's going on. He sees the significance of this moment. And this is a significant moment. Because this is his first public miracle. And yet, he's very quiet about doing it. He doesn't make a big scene. We, if you, as we read, you know, it says in the, in, the, in the text that the master of the ceremonies had no idea where the wine came from. Like he doesn't seek to bring attention to himself. But he does demonstrate his power, his glory, his authority. And most important, his love and his compassion for the bride and the groom. 
what is he motivated by? He's motivated by the bride and the groom. This is meant to be a celebration. This is meant to be a joy-filled time for them and this village. And the, the fact that there is no wine, he knows, he understands the cultural significance. And yet, instead of just allowing it to be what it is, he's motivated to compassion. And we see that all throughout scripture where he sees someone in need, he sees somebody who is in want, and he is motivated by his heart to act according to who he is. And that's exactly what we see. And what's even additionally fascinating, I think, is that this actually isn't a need. They didn't need more wine. I mean, who knows how long, how many days the, the festival has been going on. It's, it was more of a, it's, it's a want in some ways, right? I mean, when we look at somebody who is ill and needs healing, you're like, well, sure, yes, heal. Here, we're talking about like a, a special drink at a great celebration. And yet Jesus is still motivated Jesus still has compassion. Jesus still shows grace and gives towards a want. He blesses even in that. Which I think speaks more to not that like we get what we want (laughs) and not to say that, but it actually fits very well within scripture. We know Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And if you were here when Jay McCumber spoke, he spoke on 2 Corinthians 9, and it talks about the, the principles of reaping and sowing. You know, what you, what you reap, you will sow, and that in God's grace, there is a bountiful return. And so the act of Jesus giving an abundance of wine in this is actually, it's about his character. This is who he is. He is their shepherd. They shall not be without want. They shall not be lacking. It fits with who Jesus is. And here when he is faced with his people lacking, he is their shepherd. He provides. So they shall not be with want. And so we could see that, it, again, this very first miracle, it speaks so much to who Jesus is and why he has come. So Mary responds with, do whatever he tells you to the servants. This along with the fact that the servants listen to Jesus when he says, grab these stone jars and go fill them up. There's hope, there's anticipation, and most importantly, there's faith. There's this trust that something will happen. Whatever he's going to do, he will take care of it, as he said. And so we see their faith demonstrated, and throughout all the Gospels, we know that faith often is a big part of any miracle that Jesus does. If it's not by faith, if it's not according to faith, it 
strengthens the faith of those who get to witness or be a part of the miracles. So what does Jesus tell them to do? He tells them to take these six stone jars. Now, these stone jars are for the Jewish rites of purification. This is where the imagery gets really thick. Because here we have six stone jars. If you see up there, six is up there as well. It's important because it is the number that represents incompletion. It's not fulfilled yet. And this is according to the Jewish law, the Levitical law, the Old Covenant, right? And so he has six representing incompletion. He says, take these six jars and fill them with water. These stone jars, they represent the Levitical law. They represent the Old Covenant. And then what does he do? He turns the water in those jars into wine. Completely, in some ways, desecrating the purpose of the stone jars. Therefore, purification and cleansing. And now they're filled with wine, which is for drinking and rejoicing and celebrating. He takes something that was old and inefficient and he fills it with something that represents the new covenant, represents what he is bringing. He is bringing grace, he is bringing salvation. He is, his presence is, an, is actually an answer to prophecies that have been told over and over again. And there's something to celebrate about that. And all of that is represented in the simple act of filling this up. And he doesn't say anything. All he does is he directs the servant. He says, draw some out of the pot and take it to the master. I am thankful that I was not that servant. (laughs) How much faith and trust and hope did that servant have to have, right? Because here he is. I mean, it's like walking up to a king when you're uninvited, right? Like here he is bringing a cup that he knows he put water in those jars. He knows that he's bringing this cup of water potentially to the master of ceremonies who thinks it's going to be wine, who expects it to be wine. And the servant, he just takes it. And he gives it to the master of ceremonies. How much trust, how much faith did that take? And then we hear, and you know, John tells us that the master of the ceremonies was just overwhelmed because the wine tasted good and it was better than the wine before. And how is it that, you know, this bridegroom gets the acknowledgement, right? The bridegroom actually gets the acknowledgement of of saving such good wine for the end. And not bringing out the, the, the weaker wine, the poor, less good tasting wine. After everybody had had plenty. But that he brings out the good wine. And so Jesus doesn't even get the glory from it. Because that's not what it's about. It's not, he's not looking for the fame and recognition. But he honors the tradition. He honors the bridegroom in this act of giving wine. And yet speaks volumes to who he is. And so Jesus' first act, his first miracle, it just highlights and it points to why he has come. 
and it gives us so much in the imagery, in the symbolism, in the representation of the six stone jars of the water being turned into wine. That, you know, as scholars say, well, why was this his first miracle? It's so random and out of character. But when you actually look at the symbolism, it makes perfect sense. Because he's introducing himself to the people. He's informing the Jewish culture, the Jewish people, that this is who I am. By taking the traditional symbols of the Old Covenant and reusing them and reshaping them to be the picture of what the New Covenant is going to bring. And this is in his purpose, right? He says, my, um, my hour has not yet come. And so he's not there yet, but he's beginning to tell them. He's beginning the ministry. He's beginning to fulfill the purpose in which God has called him to. So now how, you might ask, all right, that's great. So God of miracles, it's really good, you know. How does this fit with Lent? It's a good question. It's a question I ask myself as well. <laughs> it's a question I asked Tim. <laughs> so how does this actually relate to Lent? Um, and Tim was like, eh, I don't know. Figure it out. <laughs> he said, he's like, I just knew we need to talk about God and miracles. When you look at the season of Lent, Oftentimes, it comes with a posture and an attitude of being kind of solemn. Um, you know, there's that practice of giving something up for Lent. So it's about discipline. It's about obedience. Things, those um, spiritual disciplines, um, much like Paul introduced us this morning, the discipline of confession, you know. Um, so Lent oftentimes is a time to kind of be self-reflective and to engage in a discipline. When we look at the miracles, there's great joy. You know, like the wine represents joy. When God does a miracle, when, when we heard Brad read, I mean, like, I don't know about you, but just the, like, there's just a sense of awe that comes over you when you're like, holy cow, like, what God did in Michigan, I think Michigan, right? Not Michigan. He also did in Africa. Like, he connected Michigan and Africa. How awesome is that? And it's just, it's overwhelming. The ability and the presence and the power of God. And it's when we recognize the awesomeness in light of the lack of God, that we can have great joy. Brene Brown talks about this in our own experience, that she says, those who allow themselves to walk through the pain of deep sorrow are also the people who experience the greatest joy. Because joy is not just an emotion. It's something that we choose to have in light of whatever our current circumstances are. I was listening to Graham Cook this week, and he talks about being thankful and rejoicing. 
And that if we want to hear God, we need to get to a place of being thankful for who he is in our life and rejoicing in what he has done. And he says, in order to do that, that's an act of the will. The will is not determined by emotion. The will is something that we can kind of push ourselves into. The will is something that we can choose to pursue. So the will can pursue thankfulness. The will can pursue rejoicing. And although the emotion might not be there, the emotions will come because emotions, they're not there to guide us, but they're there to help validate our experiences. They're there to help validate the truths that we encounter. And so when we come to the stories of God's miracles, when we come to looking for God in our lives, and when we come to asking the Lord what it is we want to know, asking the Lord to reveal or show us something, that oftentimes is an act of the will to get ourselves to a place where we can hear. And where we can hear is when we are in a place of thanksgiving, when we're in a place of being filled with joy because of who he is in our life. Then we're in alignment with God and we can hear a lot better because we're saying that God then is God of our circumstances, not our circumstances dictate who our God is. And here in this experience, what's it say at the very verse 11? It says, this, the first sign of this the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. We can see this contrast because look at the master of ceremonies. Who does he give recognition to? He gives it to the bridegroom. Why? Because he didn't know what happened. He didn't know that they were almost out of wine. But he knew that they needed more wine and all of a sudden wine arrived just like it should. And so was he filled with joy? Yes, he had joy and he had excitement because it was good wine and he thanked the bridegroom. But what about the disciples? What about the servants? What about Mary? What about Jesus who all knew there was no more wine? They actually understood the risk. They understood the need. And so then when Jesus actually produces wine... There's so much more joy because they understood how important this wine is. It's not just the next batch to be presented. There was no next batch. And Jesus allowed it to happen. Jesus brought into being this more wine. And so it's when we can actually see what God sees. When we, step back, when we look at our circumstances and we see that it's beyond what we can do or what we have the ability to change, and then we come over here and we trust and have faith and believe in God, and then we get to see what God sees, it's there that we get to actually understand the joy that's available. We get to actually embrace it because our circumstances then are being submitted to how big our God is. And Lent is great in that sense, that the season of Lent allows us to look at our circumstances. It produces this self-reflection. It gives us time of of discipline of saying, you know what? I'm not going to be like the master of ceremonies who is thankful for something, but doesn't understand the depth of it. 
And so that's the idea of like giving something up for Lent because it's denying ourselves something in a way that's like, this is good, but the goodness doesn't end with this thing. No, the goodness is God. And so I give up something so that I can refocus, realign myself. And these miracles are, this miracle in particular is a perfect example of that because when we actually step back and we, we, just say, oh, we need more wine, and we get it. We're, we're still looking at the wine. But when we actually understand that there was no wine, and God made wine, then he is God of our circumstances. He is God of all. And the rejoicing, that's, I mean, within our faith, what day should, there's no day that gets more rejoicing than the day that we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. There is just, I mean, it's, it should be a huge party <laughs> that day because we get to rejoice that we have a Savior. We get to be excited that God allowed his son to die, that we could be in his presence. If it wasn't for his resurrection, we wouldn't be able to be in the presence of God. And we would still be looking at our circumstances, wondering if anything is ever going to happen. We'd still be longing, we'd still be waiting, but we actually get joy, we get to rejoice that we have a Savior, we have a God who gave His Son, that we could be seen and called sons and daughters of the Most High. John says that this is the first of his signs where he manifested his glory. Jesus is the new wine. And this miracle and his death and resurrection on the cross means that all of our imperfections, he will make perfect. And that's, that's more than a promise. That's reality. It has happened. It has happened. It has happened at Cana. It has happened in our own lives. At the moment that we understand and accept Christ, and it continues to happen. Because the new wine is the new covenant. Right? In the new covenant, we take, anytime there's bread and cup on this table, right? We say, this cup is a symbol of the new covenant. And we take that. And so it continues. The miracle at Cana was not just a once and done. Because Jesus is not a once and done. And so the new covenant, it's in us. The new wine is in us, which means there's joy, there's rejoicing, there's our imperfections being made perfect, all in who he is, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, we just thank you for this story, for this narrative about your miracle that you did at that wedding feast. 
how humble of a miracle it is. And God, I just, I pray um, this morning that we would just have a sense of knowing you deeper because of how we see you acted at that feast. And Father, we just rejoice and we praise your name because you are God. You are son of the living God, Jesus Christ. And uh, because of that, we get to stand in the presence of the Father. And this miracle points to that. It points to the greatness of who you are. It points to the love and the compassion that you have upon us. It points to all the junk and nastiness that we bring with us being washed away and made clean. And God, so often you communicate so much more in the symbolism and in the actions than in your words. And we just thank you that we can understand that and we can see that. And I just pray that you would continue to to wrap our minds around this wedding feast. Continue, God, to draw us deeper into you that we may know you more that we may understand your character and in return just feel the depths of your love as it washes over us. In your name we pray. Amen.